I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankowski. We've got a new podcast from the Connecticut Mirror. This season, we're going straight to the community to find out whose stories are going untold. Untold, coming soon from the Connecticut Mirror. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. Welcome to the second of our three-part series of events previewing the legislative session and the big political year ahead. I'm going to be joined tonight by State Budget Reporter Keith Fanef, and I know you'll have a lot of questions for him. I do want to say, though, before we start, that the Connecticut Mirror's impact reporting is made possible because of the members of this organization, some 1,700 people who help support the Mirror with their direct financial support. If you are a Connecticut member, a Connecticut Mirror member, and I'm sure that many of you are, thank you for your support. If you aren't yet, go right to the Mirror's website, ctmirror.org, and then just click on that big donate button. And if you haven't really checked out the Mirror's new website, it's pretty cool. It's pretty easy to navigate, much easier to read. And there's a lot of ways that you can interface with ctmirror.org. So please do support if you can. And thank you. I also want to tell you, we've got one more event coming up. It's a legislative preview panel looking ahead at policy issues and the politics of the year. I'll be joined by Hearst, Connecticut's Dan Haar. I'll call him Danny, uh, CT News Junkies, Susan Bigelow, and Southern Connecticut State University Professor Jonathan Wharton, the preppy prof. But tonight, it's Keith Faniff's Big Budget Preview. Keith Faniff, welcome to our program. Thanks so much. It's good to see you, man. Thank you. I, I don't think I can top Keith's Big Budget Preview. That's kind of like, wasn't that a 70s variety show? It, it came on right after Shields and Yarnell? I, I think so. I seem to remember that one. For like they, three they, weeks, they, then it got they, canceled? They, there were Muppets or something, as I remember. Um, look, we've done some version of Keith Fanef's big budget preview for, I don't know, 20-something years, Keith. But this year feels kind of different. When we were preparing, I, I was casting my memory back and thinking, have we ever had a budget preview when we were talking about a state budget that actually has a surplus to to deal with, as opposed to a gigantic deficit, and is also coming in a political year. So there's two things that are really important happening at the same time. Do you remember a budget year like this? Honestly, no, because there are, even in the history of the state of Connecticut, people can think back to the, to the times of the rebates in the late 90s and the rolling years, or the big surplus we had under Governor Rell just before the Great Recession hit in 2008. But even those don't, you know, there are surpluses and there are surpluses. And this year is the latter. Um, We are talking about projections to finish this fiscal year with about two and a half billion dollars of black ink. That that surplus alone is more than 10% of the budget. And they're saying the next fiscal year that begins in July is looking at almost $2 billion. And they have to do another forecast in April and they expect more good news then. So stay tuned, these numbers could ratchet up. Combine that with 3 billion in the rainy day fund. We've never had this much money lying around, but we've never had this many strings attached to it either. 
Okay, so strings attached, and we'll definitely get to that. But for, for people who have not been following it as closely as you have, many people who are on this program certainly follow the state budget very closely. But how did we get here? I mean, how did we get to a place where we have this gigantic capital B um, budget surplus that is going to continue to grow, as you've suggested, throughout the course of this year? Okay. Well, we've kind of got there twofold. And, and remember, folks, now when I slip into the depressing news, John led me there when he, when he innocently asked me, where did, how did we get this surplus? Well, probably about two-thirds of it, three-quarters of it, we owe to, I don't want to say a robust economy, but I want to say to a robust stock market. Since 2018, We've assembled all of this. We had almost no money in the rainy day fund and we were averaging about a thousand, excuse me, a million, what am I saying? One more try, a billion dollars. There we go. The numbers are so big. A billion dollars a year. <laughs> that is a big spread. <laughs> just, just tied to Wall Street. Yeah. And that kept adding up and adding up and adding up. But here's where I counter the negative. Counter with the negative. We had, I said, you know, two and a half billion dollar surplus this year, two billion next year, three billion in the rainy day fund. Well, when we started running up these surpluses, when it began in 2018, the state of Connecticut had $75 billion of long-term debt. That's pension debt, that's debt that we owe to our retirement healthcare program, and that's bonded debt. And then the trick question I would ask you all is, how much overall debt do you think we have now? The answer is 95 billion. Some of that debt we kind of always had, we changed some of our assumptions about our pension fund and we acknowledged, we kind of inflated some of our estimates for investments, uh, for pension investment earnings. But we also have refinanced our pension funds every chance we get, three times, in the last five years, we've refinanced the pensions. And it is not, despite what some government officials will tell you, just like refinancing your home. It's not even close to that. We stretch out the debt much longer. We unfortunately then ask our children and our grandchildren to make that up, plus tons of missed investment opportunities, missed investment earnings. That refinancing has artificially lowered the amount of money we spend in the budget every year on the pensions. In other words, if we're normally say contributing two and a half billion dollars a year, and that's supposed to go up, once you refinance your pension, it increases your debt, but it might lower your annual contribution from 2.5 to 2.3 to 2.2. So now all of a sudden there's more room in the budget. So some of this surplus we have is like going to the bank, taking out a loan and putting some of the money in your savings account. Don't pat yourself on the back because you're building your savings. You're building your savings by borrowing money. We refinance the pension debt to try to stabilize the budget because it was simply growing too fast. But some of these surpluses are the reason that we now will be dealing with challenging pension payments. Well, not into the early 2030s, but the late 2040s. Thus ends the sobering part of this talk. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that, that is sobering and that is very consistent with what you've been reporting and what we've been hearing for a number of years. 
But what about the tons of cash on hand, the fact that we actually have this right now surplus? What exactly, first of all, before we get to all the ways that people want to spend it, whether it's on tax cuts or uh, helping out first responders, doing things that will help low and middle income people in the state, is there any piece of this that, that people in the Lamont administration or people in the legislature are looking at and saying, now's a pretty good time for us to think about how to chip away at that $95 billion down the road. Is there some way that people are thinking about this? Like now's the perfect time to take, <laughs> take that money we borrowed out of our savings account and maybe try to figure out how to pay down the debt. A- absolutely, John. I think you will see the overwhelming bulk of the projected surplus this fiscal year make its way after June into the pension funds. That's what we did last fiscal year. We put about $1.6 billion into the pension funds. And this is not an argument for saying we shouldn't do that, but keep in mind that even if we put every penny in this year, Connecticut still has a tough road to hoe well into the 2040s. There is no formula to overcome 70 years of pension neglect with two years, three years of unprecedented surpluses. So that then begs the question, and this is going back to the other part of what you asked, should some of that surplus be used in some other way? Can state government get by with less money and effectively spend it, sorry for the air quotes, um, on tax breaks? I mean, the tax breaks are effectively a tax expenditure. It's money, government says, we don't need this to come in, let's return it to Connecticut households. Um, if you want to talk about that, John, we, we certainly have no shortage of proposals on how to cut taxes in an election year. Well, well, let's do that. I mean, since we do have these things all happening at the same time, we've got an election year while we have this big budget surplus. That does feel like a, a pretty good time for politicians to say, yes, let's cut taxes. Walk us through the proposals that are out there. The governor has made proposals to this effect. Maybe we'll start with him. What does Ned Lamont want to do to cut your taxes? Well, the the governor unveiled several proposals this week. Uh, Chief among them was he wants to cut, he, he wants to provide property tax relief, but the way he's going to do it is partly through the state income tax. We have a credit on the income tax for middle-class families. Um, it used to be much larger. It's a maximum of $200 now, um, but there are also some limits on it. It used to be open to everybody who was income eligible, but now you have to be not only income eligible, but either over 65 or have children. In other words, they cut out um, non-seniors who don't have kids. The governor wants to restore that so that everybody who meets the income guidelines can get it. And he also wants to bump it up to $300. So this would not pay all of your property tax bill, but it would offset a larger portion. Um, He also wants to freeze property taxes on vehicles statewide at 29 mills. Now we actually have a cap right now. It's 45 mills though. And there are only eight communities in the entire state that tax above that. And so when the state says you can't charge more than 45 mills, say you have a mill rate of 50, the state says, well, we'll make up the difference. We'll pay the extra money, but you can only charge the car owner 45 mils. By lowering the cap to 29, as the governor proposed, that's going to affect 103 communities. 
He's saying, okay, it's going to cost us $160 million to keep those folks whole. So let's do that. Those are the two main proposals that he put out there to sort of attack the property, attack the property tax problem, give you a little more back in your income tax, and also try to have you not pay so much at, at your local town hall. As you and I have talked about in the past, Keith, one of the hallmarks of Governor Lamont's uh, campaign for governor in 2018 was uh, middle and lower income tax relief that he didn't exactly come through with uh, during the beginning part of his four-year term. That's also something that's that, that's part of his plan right now. Maybe you can just give us a, a little bit of a history lesson here and in, in how we got to this point where you know, a pretty substantial campaign pledge hasn't been uh, fulfilled necessarily, but the governor has an opportunity in this election year to really do something about it. Sure. Um, I guess if we go back to, to 2018, um, then candidate Lamont, um, if you were going to lay out the context, um, was in a difficult place. His uh, opponent, uh, Bob Stefanowski, a Republican from Madison, had made a very, quite frankly, questionable claim. And that was that he could eliminate, he was going to phase out the entire state income tax in eight years. Um, mathematically, I'm not even talking about politically, mathematically, that is nothing close to realistic. You simply can't remove something that produces more than half of the money for the state budget and even expect the state to meet its legal obligations. Um, not to mention that even if that spurred the economy, um, there's never been any evidence that without an income tax, now Connecticut would have the ability to raise the money it needed through the sales tax and the other things to cover all of its debt. The big problem was Bob Stefanowski also never offered any evidence. No, no, he never tried to show well, mathematically, here's how you work it out. Here's how I could actually implement it. It was sort of a trust me promise. And the Lamont campaign really, I think, quite frankly, needed a shield. So they came out and said, here's what's doable. And keep in mind, folks, in 2018, the surpluses hadn't been pouring in. So again, then candidate Ned Lamont said, what is doable are um, increasing the property tax credit. But there was another element to his plan as well. He also specifically said, I'm going to help poor households. I'm going to take, because because a lot of poor households don't have any income tax liability. I'm going to create a new special targeted credit that will give the average really low income household that pays at least it was like six or, or more than 6% of its, of its money toward, or, toward property taxes, I'm going to give them $700. Some will get as much as $1,200. He, he got elected. And then he found out, quite frankly, it was harder to balance the state budget than he thought. But here was the, the kicker. State finances did not get worse after he got elected. They marginally improved. In other words, the conditions were actually better than the projections when he made the promise. And he was supposed to do it in his second and third years. He didn't. The Mirror and other news organizations reported frequently that that was a promise that he'd reneged on. And he's got, as you point out, John, an opportunity to kind of clean up half of it. But he never did that, even, even this week when he proposed it. He never proposed the second part. What, what Governor Lamont found out was that to provide this type of relief, keep the budget in balance, pay for the other things, you probably have to raise taxes modestly on Connecticut's wealthier households. 
That is something he fundamentally will not do. That was not something that came out in the 2018 campaign, but it's been made abundantly clear since then. Yeah, so he has seen that, excuse me, in order to fulfill that promise, he would need to do something he doesn't want to do. Meanwhile, over the course of of all of these years, uh, progressives in the state have been saying that increase on higher income earners has to be made at some point in order to make sure that people who are struggling here in the state can actually move forward. Uh, Sean Scanlon, who is the co-chair of the, the finance committee, is one of many people who said, look, this, this recovery, all this um, Wall Street money that's flowing in that allows us to have a surplus, that really reflects Wall Street, but it doesn't necessarily reflect Main Street. And there's a whole bunch of people who did not recover very well from COVID at all and didn't start from a place of strength in the first place. They've been calling on the governor, this governor and the previous governor, to do something about that. But Keith, because of the political realities, just doesn't seem like this is at all the year where we're going to see a real push on tax increases on wealthy residents. That's a really good point, John. I mean, you mentioned Representative Scanlon. Sean wants to do a $600 per child child tax credit within the state income tax system. He even also wants to make it refundable so that low-income families would benefit from it, even those without income tax liability. Um, Because he keeps saying, you know, the economy has been working for Wall Street, but not for Main Street. John, I, I had just checked our unemployment numbers, just was looking back before the pandemic, you know, you'd have some of our our uh, affluent suburbs, and not even just in Fairfield County, with unemployment rates between two and a half, three percent, while the cities would be at five and six. During the pandemic, okay, your Greenwiches and your Westports went up to four and five. Your New Londons, your Hartfords, they went up to 11 and 12 percent, and they're recovering much more slowly. We can't emphasize enough how much the pandemic has skewed everything. I, I want to turn to, I mean, there's so many different ways that people want to spend this, this surplus money. One of the most important ones, and you mentioned this earlier, but I want to get into what the politics of it are, is how exactly do we help to compensate the people who are frontline workers, both in the public and private sectors? These are people who risked their lives during the pandemic. And in many cases, just to be frank, what they got was a whole bunch of signs with hearts on them on people's front lawns and they didn't get bubkis beyond that. And I'm wondering what you think this legislative session is going to hold for the people who believe that some of the money that's come to the state through the federal government should be going to make them whole. That's another really good one. And also high points for using my favorite Yiddish word. Um, (laughs) I I learned that one from you many years ago. Okay. Um, I, I, I really think whether you call it um, hazard pay, which is what a lot of the public sector frontline workers call it, or hero pay, which is what the unions are asking for, for folks who may work um, for nonprofit social services or nursing homes or their home care attendants. And, and remember, even though a lot of these services technically are delivered by the private sector, the, it's a private sector that gets almost all of its funding from government sources. Um, at some point, I think the unions are making it clear that 
just bumping the minimum wage is probably not enough. We're looking at horrible shortages, like for example, in all the social services, uh, nonprofit social services that provide uh, help for the disabled. They were already facing double digit turnover rates. They're looking at turnover rates now around 20%. They have a horrible staff shortage. They can't keep people in the job. It was always something that you know you you did it knowing you were never going to become a millionaire. That a lot of people do it because it's in their heart. But then when you think, wait a minute, am I risking my life doing this? Um, I mean, we're having trouble getting staff in grocery stores. We're having trouble getting staff um, in gas stations. I mean, these were always challenges. These are always things that had a lot of turnover because they're very low paying. But it's it's really it's getting into now our healthcare. Uh, industry. And at some point, uh, Connecticut's going to have to deal with, I don't know if it's going to happen this year, but it's coming. Why isn't it going to happen this year? What, what's the, what's the political calculus for that not happening this year? If you think about it, he, here we are a society that was propped up by people going to work as everything from first responders to, um, essential workers. And that's how we made it through this pandemic, probably about as well as any other state could could possibly be. Uh, everyone wants to help people who have put in this effort. It is a political year. We've got money to spend. We got money to spend from the from the government, and we also have our own surpluses. So, right. So, what's the rub? Why isn't this like thing number one on everyone's agenda? Because the governor other moderate to fiscally conservative Democrats and most of the Republicans uh, believe that Connecticut basically should wait and see how state finances are doing in 2024, which sounds very far off, but basically that's when the federal money expires. I will just point out that right now, the fiscal cliff people are talking about in 2024 is barely a speed bump anymore. We're projecting deficits two years out from now. I'm going to now make $500 million seem small. But the fact of the matter is that's the projection, not counting the fact that we have a special savings program that stops us from spending all of the money that we get from Wall Street. We can only spend a portion of it. If we were calculating the surplus or deficit two years down the road, based on the same rules we used from 2017 all the way back to the beginning of the income tax, we'd be projecting a surplus even after all the federal money vanishes. However, and here's the kicker answer to your question, we budget in two-year cycles. And what we're entering now, the governor will propose next Wednesday, his revisions to the second year. Meaning if there's nothing done, He's sort of the default winner. The Republicans are the default winners. The moderate Democrats are the default winners. They don't need to pass anything to get what they want. They just need to block what they don't want. And they want to wait and see where we are after the federal money goes away. It's hard because of the leverage that they have. Uh, our friend Kathy Flaherty asked, asked a question here in the Q&A. What happens when the federal COVID-related money goes away and we've given people all these tax cuts? 
how bad is it going to be? So you've talked a little bit about, about this, about how in a couple of years when that federal money goes away, it's more of a speed bump than this, than this fiscal cliff. But I think what Kathy's getting at is the proposals that we're hearing so far from the governor and others are, we're going to cut your taxes in response to our surplus in this influx of money, but we're not necessarily going to make some of the other investments that she and others probably are, are, are calling for. So it's not as though we're not going to be spending the money, Keith. We're just going to be spending it on tax cuts for people. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to answer Kathy's question, but I want to go to a point that's been raised by John, the Senator John Fonfara from Hartford. Uh, Connecticut Voices for Children has put this out there. Um, John Fonfara was sort of the chief architect, along with Kevin Lembo, of the savings program that's in effect now. But John and, and Kevin, for that matter, too, did before he had stepped down. That we're, we're big advocates for investing in our cities, in our healthcare program, in our school systems. John doesn't want to stop saving. He simply says, let's keep the savings program where it is. But let's, if you were watching last session, he said, let's dramatically raise taxes. Now, he focused most of his tax hikes several hundred million dollars on Connecticut's wealthiest households and on its largest corporations. His argument was you can still keep saving, putting that money into the pension system, raise some more for taxes and make the type of investments that I suspect Kathy's talking about and others are talking about. However, that's not only a non-starter with the minority, that's not just a non-starter with Governor Lamont. That's a non-starter with a significantly growing portion of the Connecticut Democratic Party. There is a, a showdown coming because it, the way I see it, and this is the, the Democratic Party nationally, but particularly in Connecticut, has sort of become a coalition of the very wealthy and the very poor. People traditionally think of the Republican Party as the party of the rich. But if you look at where most of the wealth in the United States is centered, it's overwhelmingly in blue states. That's a coalition that I wonder, is it, is it really able to stay together once they, once they no longer have Donald Trump to look at and say, boy, we both really don't like him. I wonder how much else they still have in common, particularly fiscally. Uh, to, to this point that we were talking about just a moment ago, Don Noel asks, Hi, Don. Uh, the federal government says the money states received in pandemic assistance may not be turned into tax cuts. How strictly or generously is that restriction being observed? Um, I, that's a good question, Don. Thank you. First off, right now, because we took about $1.8 of the federal money we received and we've used it to support the current state budget. And, and I'm going to answer Don's question, but stay with me for a minute. Think about this. We put almost $2 billion of federal money into the budget. Over, over this fiscal year and next. And over that same period, I said, we're projecting a four, over two years, we're projecting a $4.4 billion surplus. So isn't basically all of the federal money contributing to our surplus? Aren't we effectively, I don't wanna say laundering, but filtering the federal money through the budget, producing a surplus and taking federal COVID relief money and using it to beef up our pensions. It seems that way. We weren't given the money to beef up our pensions. That was Fred Karstensen's point. All of this money should be spent. We should be spending, not forever, 
but for this year and next, far beyond normal levels to revitalize everything, education, small business, large business, labor, job training, go on and on and on. In answer to Don's question, the federal government, because they don't want it, they appear to be a little more lenient about us filtering the money into the pensions than they are using it for taxes. We can only cut our current tax system by about 1%, but there's more than one way to skin that cat. Um, point, in fact, what, what Governor Lamont did this week, when he says, I'm gonna freeze car taxes, car taxes are a municipal tax. Federal restrictions don't apply to that. So when we're giving towns 160 million, say you freeze your car taxes, we'll make up the difference. As far as the federal accountants are concerned, that's an expenditure by the state of Connecticut, not a tax cut. We're spending 160 million, giving it to towns, telling them you freeze municipal taxes. So yes, we are limited to probably doing about $250 million to true, according to Hoyle's state tax cuts. But there are other ways we can leverage dollars to drive down taxes if we want to. I, I think one of the things we're hearing from whether it's Connecticut voices or, or other progressive voices is that there is also I mean, there's a, obviously longstanding inequity problems in Connecticut, which we're not necessarily chipping away at through any of this. But there's also a right now problem in the midst of, of all of this. We're seeing inflation. We're seeing the costs at the grocery store go up. We're seeing costs at the gas pump go up. Those are real costs that are being passed down under real people. And that's one of the concerns too, Keith, about right at this very moment is a, is a tenuous time for this kind of economic recovery coming out of COVID. It's, it's Interesting, John. Connecticut Voices was really the first one out front to, to sort of raise the alarm bell a couple of years ago and say the entire sort of fate of Connecticut's economy is at state, as in if we don't deal with this tremendous income and wealth inequality, is the entire health of the economy at risk? If we have so many folks who aren't contributing much to, to the GDP and who are relying so heavily on public services, who will keep the economy going as that system goes on? Um, we just came off a year nationally with 7% inflation. I told you about the unemployment. When, you, when you've got 11 and 12% unemployment in your urban centers, um, there are huge, huge problems. And a lot of that also was masked. We, we keep forgetting in 2020 and much of 2021, folks who were unemployed, the average state of unemployment benefits about $300 a week. We're also getting a matching $300 from the federal government. A lot of folks were actually bringing home more money unemployed than they were on their jobs if they lost a job as a, as a busboy in a restaurant um, through their state and federal unemployment. And that kept, and that was essential to keep the economy going. But that was like Novocaine protecting us from feeling the pain of a recession. Well, the Novocaine in that case went away in September of 2021. We're still just sort of feeling that. And then there was the enhanced federal income tax child credit. The enhancement, not the entire credit, but the enhancement, that was an extra $1,000 or $1,600 per child for a lot of households. That went away on January 1st. We are still learning just how much pain the pandemic caused. It was always there, but we didn't feel it as much. Um, we do have a question, actually, from Kathleen, who says, how likely is it that Connecticut will pass a permanent refundable child tax credit, and what would be necessary to do so? Um, quite frankly, a lot's going to depend on, on Governor Lamont. I, I can't obviously speak for Sean Scanlon, but if I had to guess, I would 
expect that even if he couldn't have it take effect right away because of, of the federal situation, if he could say, get it passed and take effect when the federal money wears off. My guess is that he would, he would call that a win. Um, the question is, you know, Governor Lamont's gonna say, but when the federal money goes away, will I have to take, uh, will I have to raise taxes on the wealthy to be able to continue to afford to provide a child tax credit for the poor and the middle class? That is uh, the discussion that I think may not come up as much on the campaign trail because I don't think Bob Stefanowski is also looking necessarily um, to, to tax the wealthy, but I think the governor's base, the progressive elements of his base are gonna push hard between now and the convention to try to broaden his platform. Before I forget, John, could I also Please. mention to folks, if we don't get to anyone's question, they're welcome to, to contact me on Twitter if they wanna keep the conversation going that way. I know sometimes people have a question that we're burning to ask. They could just send me a message at CT uh, Mirror Keith. CT Mirror Keith, send them a, a DM and, and Keith will get to those things. What, what do we see in terms of education spending this upcoming legislative session, Keith? I think Connecticut will continue with, uh, in, 20, in 2018, we began a 10-year program to increase uh, the uh, education cost sharing grant. That's adding on average about $70 million this fiscal year and about $70 million next fiscal year to cities and towns. Um, you're gonna definitely see some pressure to accelerate that. The school and state finance project uh, run by Lisa Hammersley has already come out and said, hey, we're certainly positioned to try to push harder to equalize funding more quickly. Um, but if I had to guess, I would guess we're going to stay on that pace. Um, simply because um, the, the, I mean, the best evidence that I can point to that the governor basically wants to stay with the status quo is, we were, we were talking before this, uh, just before this event began, I was telling John that I had covered my first uh, state budget in 1993, and I have too many of them leaking out of my ears at this point. <laughs> but I've never covered one where in the lead up to the budget, the governor has had fewer what they call rollouts. I, I will say for our, our audience that we had reached out over the course of the last couple months to Governor Lawant's office to be part of this series of conversations to answer some of your questions before the legislative session starts, and they declined to be part of it. Uh, just so that you know, we have been trying to ask some of these questions directly of the governor ourselves. CJ is asking, does Governor Lamont plan on funding the Nursing Education Loan Forgiveness Program? The Office of Fiscal Analysis says this program is currently unfunded. Um, I don't know. That's, I, don't, I can certainly check into this. I would think the best shot for programs like that will be the Appropriations Committee. What the Appropriations Committee did last year, this is the only way we've sort of cracked into, we've been talking about, can we spend the surplus? Can we spend the surplus? The Appropriations Committee took about $200 million of the surplus last fiscal year. In other words, around May, just before the fiscal year ended and spent it in a few areas. So it, it's sort of, it's not officially surplus until June 30th, till you're done, till you, and really even then till after you audit and close the books. 
So they spent some of it on certain targeted areas. And I expect you'll see a push for them to do it again. I, I really don't know if that specific program will get funded, but I think that's, that's the best bet that you're going to see. Here's one you're going to love, Keith. Um, Alex asks, um, can you ask Keith about bonding and the status of the debt diet? Oh yeah, the debt diet. We're not gonna we're not gonna borrow anymore. We need to go on a on a debt diet. How's that looking right now? A year ago at this time, Governor Lamont continued a tradition under Governor Malloy, and we borrowed about two hundred million dollars to pay to make payments on borrowing. That will show you how the debt diet's going. In fairness to Governor Lamont, and in fairness to Governor Malloy, um, <clears throat> that is something the Connecticut General Assembly has not had as much of an appetite to pull back on. Also, bonding has kind of always been, borrowing has always been the great compromise maker. Well, if you remember a little earlier in this talk, I said John Fonfair on the Finance Committee wanted to raise hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes with income tax surcharges on the uber wealthy and on major corporations. They wanted a lot of that money invested in poor cities. Governor Lamont said no. Uh, Speaker Matt Ritter brokered a compromise and we're gonna borrow about one and a half billion dollars over the next five years to make not as many investments as people wanted, but to make investments in the cities and Governor Lamont gets no tax hikes on the wealthy and on uh, major corporations. So it's kind of hard to go on a debt diet um, in politics, especially in, in Connecticut politics. Uh, Jay, Jason is asking, what are the prospects eventually for a carbon tax? I'm, I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on this, but I, it, it's making me think of what happened with the Transportation Climate Initiative. Um, for those who aren't, aren't familiar with it, um, it, it was a, a regional program that was proposed and um, it would have had an effect of raising gasoline prices and it would have raised um, a lot of revenue for various environmental, uh, laudable environmental, environmental and transportation initiatives. What was interesting about it was how it got killed. It was killed by a very strange coalition of the right and the far left. The moderate Democrats wanted it. The Republicans opposed it on the grounds that it would add anywhere from five to 10 cents a gallon to the price of gas. And they just on principle were like, that's a tax hike. We're not gonna support it. Then you had the far left that pointed out the one problem that you have, even though you could argue that TCI is going to improve air quality in the cities. They're saying the wealth inequality is so extreme at this state. People can say, well, if we raise taxes on the rich, they're on the verge of leaving. They're saying the poor are on the verge of breaking. And gasoline taxes, even though they have valuable purposes, are also highly regressive. They don't care if you're very poor, very rich, or something in the middle. We all pay the same tax. They're already considerable in Connecticut. And the far left said, Governor Lamont, if we can't do more to help the poor and the, and the, the low to middle middle class, they, we don't feel they can take any more. TCI is going to have to wait. I wonder if a carbon tax could, you know, I mean, that, that would probably come down more on corporations, but I, I find it interesting. It's going to, it's going to depend a lot on how, how the different forces line up.
Is TCI, though, in, in its form going to come back up again this year? I really don't think so. I think Governor Lamont um, took a hit on that. We all know he took a hit his first two years on tolls. He didn't get what he wanted. And because the surplus is so high, granted it's a general fund surplus, he can bleed some of that over that into the transportation fund. We still will have ultimately, even with the additional federal money, I don't care how people present it, that doesn't solve all of our problems. We still have long-term decisions to make. But the current prosperity will allow Governor Lamont probably to, to not have to deal with that. It'll probably be a question that'll go to his successor whenever, whenever that next governor takes office. And, and no one talks about tolls anymore. I, I would be aghast if it, <laughs> they will discuss toll house cookies this session. Before they'll discuss toll. Uh, J- Jeff writes this question, uh, first time, long time, which is a, a longtime talk radio host, I very much appreciate. So thank you, Jeff. I'm wondering about the effects of, uh, number one, the imminent state employee retirements, and two, the administration's modernization efforts on future surplus and slash deficit projections. Thank you for the questions, Jeff. Thank so, you, Jeff. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, that was one I, I should have brought up. Jeff is referring to the silver tsunami, the idea that about 25% of the state employee workforce, maybe, you know, 12,000 employees are going to be eligible to retire this year. Next, that is not the same as saying I expect 12,000 people to actually retire. Or am I saying 12,000 positions are going to be eliminated from state government? I'm not saying either of those. But Governor Lamont has made no secret of the fact that he thinks the state has a really good opportunity to downsize the workforce. He's also been saying he thinks that we can actually make services in many respects more efficient by replacing people with technology. I think it goes without saying that state employee unions strongly disagree with that conclusion. They have been um, very clear in writing to their membership, urging them not to cooperate with this process. When the governor proposed his budget last February, it was right around the time, shortly after he had gotten a report from the Boston Consulting Group, um, they were supposed to come up with strategies to help Connecticut learn to to save about $500 million a year, basically through attrition, making services more efficient, replacing people with technology. The governor did not build much in terms of savings into the budget that was into the, the, the plan for the current fiscal year or into the second year, and, and, and that's the fiscal year that begins in July. Next Wednesday, he'll propose his adjustments to that. I highly doubt he's going to ramp it up. I think he's going to put that issue on the back burner until if and when he's reelected, then it comes out big time. But I think for now, he's just going to let it rest because why would he want to irritate labor going into an election season when he needs them? I should ask about the state employee workforce, though, Keith. I mean, we talked earlier in the program about essential frontline workers of all types who had to go to work through this entire process, putting themselves and their families at at some risk. And then many of us work in the private sector economy that allows us to work in a very different way than we used to. We also saw the impact of a a, a great resignation. Many people just deciding, you know, I'm not really going to go back to work the way I was working before. Have there been any substantive changes to the way the state workforce has sort of reassembled itself as we come out of COVID here? And to to the earlier question that Jeff asked around modernization, is there anything different about the way the state is looking at 
how we do work as a state that is going to be a point of tension or negotiation between Lamont and labor unions? There have been some bumps in the road. Uh, I, I do think for the most part, uh, the state employees bargaining agent coalition, CBAC and the governor have been able to find middle ground on work from home arrangements. If there's a monkey wrench coming up to be thrown into the works, I would point out that we have dozens of bargaining unit contracts that are coming due this year. So you already have this combination of raises in the elections and how will the public take the raises? And if we give raises and we don't have particularly good raises for frontline employees, or if we only have them for the public sector and not the private, what does that do? I think that's gonna be very interesting. Uh, Betsy has a really good question here that harkens back to something we were talking about earlier. Uh, she asks, how likely is it that all towns will be fully reimbursed for lost revenues if the legislature caps motor vehicle property taxes? Betsy, thank you. That was, that was a, a, a great question. Um, towns have already made it very clear. They don't trust the state, quite frankly, <laughs> to maintain this. That's never been the history of state funding. Um, that's the big, certainly the big fear. Uh, I want to point out maybe the best example of where the town's skepticism, cynicism is rooted. And that was, this is my, my favorite acronym in all of state government. And that is the Municipal Revenue Sharing Account, known as MRSA. And I'm sorry, but it's a plan to save, uh, share rather, sales tax receipts with communities. It is not, in this context, a flesh-eating disease. It was passed by the legislature in 2015. It was touted like crazy in the 2016 election. You might remember, you probably got a flyer mail to your home. That was the first time anybody talked about freezing car taxes, but it was much more than just that. We were gonna send hundreds of millions of dollars a year to cities and towns, mm -hmm. sales tax receipts, so that the, the towns just didn't have to rely anymore just on property taxes. The context of that was, in 2015, Governor Malloy had just begun his second term. We'd had another major tax increase. The Democratic majority was getting beaten up. The Republicans were closing the margins in the House and Senate. And everybody said, we have to do something. We just raised taxes. Well, we'll promise a big tax cut at the municipal level. And if you read the fine print, it said, you're not going to get much of this MRSA money until 2018, but we'll campaign on it now. Communities never even got $100 million and MRSA fell into limbo in 2018. I should have also pointed out when it was passed, nonpartisan analysts were warning the legislature, you're gonna have a deficit in 2018, two and a half times the size of the money you're promising to communities. Are you sure you wanna promise it? And of course they said, we'll find some way to do it. They never delivered it. The, the, uh, the, the town leaders have been asking recently, hey, whatever happened to MRSA, maybe we should take it out of limbo with all this surplus money going out. And everybody's staying in the state level. No, we can't afford to. We need all this money for our pensions, which begs the question, why did you promise it in 2015 when you were poorer? So that's my roundabout way of saying, is it very possible that the next time the state gets into trouble, they will not keep towns whole? Yes. 
It, it is interesting though, Keith, it is, you know, because we haven't had many of these conversations over the years that, that involve a surplus where the state has to figure out how to spend money and what priorities to make. It is interesting that what we see coming up over and over again is this, this sense of promising the same pile of money to different groups, to different constituencies, to different, different people. And then just being able to say, well, I mean, we can't exactly, we can't give it all out because the Lord knows we wouldn't want to raise, raise taxes on anyone. These dollars that have come in from the federal government, these dollars that have come into the state coffers from Wall Street, seemingly they've been promised to people in a lot of different ways over the years. And you're painting a picture of people kind of queuing up going, where's the thing, man? Well, like I said, we, they were even promised to the pension funds. If we had not done all <laughs> yeah. the refinancings we did, sure. we'd be paying $630 million more a year into the pension fund this year and, and than, we, than we are. We're paying $630 million less than we were supposed to because of the refinancing. That's part of the surplus. Um, but, but yes, we have, as a state, promised this money to a lot of folks. And the sad part is we could dump all this money into the pension system. It still doesn't mean the problem is close to over. The, when we actually go into what I'll call, I don't want to say we weren't in a real recession during the pandemic, because of course we were. But when we go into a more traditional recession where the stock market plunges, not only will we start spending our rainy day fund, not only will most of these surpluses disappear, but our pension costs will go up. The way our pension debt is calculated, part of what it takes into account is what are our pension investments earning? And when the stock market goes down, the value of our investments on paper goes down. So the first thing the actuaries say is, your debt's greater state of Connecticut, pay more. In other words, this rosy situation can collapse still quickly. That's not our argument not to spend it. That's an argument while you've got that window. Are you investing it in your economy? Are you investing it in healthcare? Are you investing it in your schools? Because when things slide, they will still slide fast. And we still have three more decades, maybe two and a half more decades to go of real touch and go with the pensions. We'll do a, a couple of lightning round things as we okay. close out our hour here. Elizabeth asks an important question as we talk about investments. Will the legislature prioritize funding for child mental health programs and mental health workforce development in response to the crisis currently facing Connecticut kids? <clears throat> Excuse me. Good question. I think that may come down to the, to the same question about the nursing home funding. Um, I don't anticipate them changing much to the second year of the budget, I think you might see them tweak the numbers in that area, especially if the surplus numbers go up in April. Um, Thomas asks, if the state wants people to drive electric vehicles, why are they not offering incentives like other states? Honestly, if you're talking about anything that's tax expenditure, because we already have people who are sort of ahead of that in line in terms of tax needs, I think you're going to see so much pressure to start um, changing a system that, that basically has our, our lowest households paying 30% of everything they make effectively to taxes, um, that, that's going to be prioritized over the electric car incentives. 
Uh, uh, Fred asks, and here's another one of your favorite acronyms, will there be a, a greater effort to fully fund a pilot? Seems unfair that cities that provide services via untaxed property need to bear the burden on their own while surrounding towns benefit. The legislature and the governor did increase pilot uh, this, this current fiscal year by about $120 million. That That certainly, Fred, did not correct the problem. I don't think, though, because they just did that one, that you're going to see them go back there this year. What are some other things that you're looking at this upcoming legislative session, Keith, that have some sort of a fiscal note that really fall into your wheelhouse when it comes to the state budget, things that people are going to be uh, negotiating around, maybe topics that might come up? I think you're going to see a discussion on a ban on the, on the sale of, of flavored vaping products. Um, that's something that keeps getting swept under the rug. Um, it shouldn't, I'm not necessarily predicting that we're going to get somewhere this year, but really that's been a situation where it's been, it's been killed in the past because the state's been concerned about its own revenue in that area. And I think a lot of people um, feel like that, that, that shouldn't be the case. Um, I think you're going to continue to see discussions about what can we do to broaden Medicaid eligibility, even if we're taking baby steps this year. Um, we have so many folks who they're technically insured, but either um, they, they've got, I hate to call it cut off your arm insurance, but something that basically doesn't cover them. And you also may see a discussion about increasing compensation for Medicaid providers. We have another class of people who we say are insured without access to healthcare because they've got maybe Husky, but they can't find a doctor, particularly a specialist, who will take on new patients. They say, I'm, you know, these doctors say, I'm not getting paid enough by the state. I've already, you know, got all the Medicaid patients I can handle. And we have so many people who need to see specialists who literally are told, well, you can come in three, four months from now. Um, I think there'll be some discussion on there. I'm not too optimistic. We're going to see dramatic changes anywhere. The other night when I was talking to Mark Pazniokas about the politics of this upcoming year, it, it became pretty clear, obviously, that Governor Ned Lamont is in a is in a good position. He's got a state budget surplus. Uh, he is an incumbent. Connecticut voters tend to vote with incumbents. Uh, so politically, he's in a pretty good place. I think, Keith, you also seem to be suggesting just from a leverage standpoint with the state legislature in terms of getting what he wants to get done during this short legislative session, he's in a pretty good spot here, too. I think he is. It's going to be very hard. Um, there's nothing, it seems like right now, in terms of fiscal matters, that Governor Lamont really, really needs to have. And we've known ever since the state passed public financing in 2005, the legislature in, in even numbered years, they get out of town on time. They don't want to go into special session because there's a very short window of time, as I'm sure Mark discussed with you. Um, the, the session will end in the first week of May. These um, legislators, all the ones running for re-election, have a short window of time at which they have to raise um, and small individual contributions, the seed money they need to qualify for public financing. So they can only, they can only battle with Governor Lamont until the first week of May, and then they have to go. Well, and one final question for you, Keith, just on the, on the politics of this, have you heard anything yet from the now 
I won't say presumptive Republican nominee, but uh, Bob Stefanowski has said he's running. He was running against Ned Lamont last time around. Uh, he will probably be there at least uh, uh, up until the Republican primary for sure. Have you heard anything from Bob Stefanowski about any of these issues that we talked about tonight, about how to attack long-term pension debt, about how to spend the dollars that are coming in from Washington and from Wall Street right now? I've, I've talked with Bob. I think it's going to be challenging for him. I think he knows that because um, he can certainly argue uh, the Republican legislators can make this point. Governor Malloy has made this point. Democratic legislators have made this point. And that is a lot of the fiscal good fortune Governor Lamont's experiencing, he inherited from, from both Democrats and Republicans. Now, that doesn't mean he still didn't manage the state's finances well, but the system that produced these surpluses was a system he inherited. I don't know how sexy, though, a campaign message that makes. And if Bob Stefanowski is also saying, well, listen, folks, we had $75 billion of debt in 2018, and we have $95 billion now because all we're doing is pushing off pension debt plus interest, plus a lot of interest on your kids and grandkids. Unfortunately, pension stuff is really wonky, and I just I don't know if that's going to have a lot of traction with voters. People get it when your taxes went up. They know when they're paying more for gasoline. I don't know if they blame the, the governor for the high national inflation. I would think they don't. So he's going to have a tough time finding a fiscal message that has a lot of traction. And I don't think promising to get rid of the income tax is going to do it. Well, I, I will say, I mean, it may be true that talking about the, the budget isn't exactly sexy when it comes to, to statewide politics, but it's pretty sexy to get a chance to talk about the state budget with Keith Fanov and ask him questions. So thank you for the time, Keith. And, and as Keith said before, if you have questions that were not addressed here, he can always be reached on Twitter. Just find uh, Keith on Twitter and you can hit him up in his DMs, as the kids would say. Um, Keith, really good to see you. Thank you for Likewise. all the insight and thanks for all the great reporting. Thank you. I want to thank our event sponsor, CBIA. I want to thank Kyle Constable for producing all of this great work. Thanks to him, we're able to do events like that. Thanks to you, we're able to do events like this too, because you directly support the Connecticut Mirror. If you haven't yet, go to ctmirror.org, click on that big donate button and make your contribution today. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much. Good night.